you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. And thank you for joining me in this latest of a series of conversations focused on antitrust and U.S. competition policy. If you've been listening along, and I hope you have, we've heard from former Assistant Attorney General Macon Delrahim and former FTC Chairman John Lebowitz uh, how active regulators view an attempt to grapple with questions of applying America's antitrust regime to some very 21st century problems, particularly their application to big tech, which has galvanized so much of the renewed focus on antitrust. Massive corporations such as Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google capture the imagination, but they also tend to capture markets, which, as my guest today well knows, is an issue that goes back to our founding. In fact, all of these issues surrounding data and app stores and online marketplaces are ones we've been addressing for centuries. If you want to understand what's currently happening in antitrust, you need to know the history of antitrust, which makes me so pleased to be joined today by a true student of that history. Matt Stoller is an author and the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. His new book, fresh out from Simon & Schuster, is entitled Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the American Conservative, among many other publications, and is credited with reviving a very American and very populist view of antitrust law. Matt Stoller, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having me, Dean. Matt, reading your book, Goliath, and I I really do want to commend you for a very well-written and readable piece of history. It's very reminiscent to me of Dos Passos and his USA trilogy, three novels set in the beginning decades of the 20th century, particularly your biographical sketches of Wright Patman, Andrew Mellon, and others, uh, which is a feature of those books. You know, to the extent modern audiences consider the early 20th century, and uh, it may just be you and me, uh, but it's more of a meet me in St. Louis, uh, parasols and trolley cars. The early 20th century, it's overshadowed by World War II and the Great Depression, but it's such a rich era of American history. I wonder if you, as you do in the book, set the scene. What was happening in this country that gave rise to an antitrust enforcement structure still in use today? It's a great question. And the answer, simply put, is we, we created corporate America. So corporate America was, I don't mean industrialization. Industrialization sort of started in kind of the 1830s and 40s and kept going, was accelerated by the Civil War and into the 1890s. What happened in the in sort of the mid to late 1890s is you saw this massive merger boom, much bigger than anything we've seen since. And that took a couple thousand firms that worked in, say, the iron and steel industry and created U.S. Steel, which was the first billion-dollar corporation. That's when a whole bunch of different General Electric, Westinghouse, International Harvester, the modern idea of corporate America, that's when that was created. And it was J.P. Morgan was sort of the engineer behind that, the financial engineer. There, there were a few others. But that's when America had to deal with a non-state-based, and I mean, I don't mean uh, the country, I mean actual states. We regulated our economies. They were basically local economies. And in the, the late 19th century, that's when we effectively had to say, okay, we, we have these national institutions that are private. And that was sort of the first time we'd had them. I mean, there had been standard oil, but the mo- a lot of commerce was now going through these national institutions. And so we had to address them on a federal level. And that's why you saw the 
Sherman and Antitrust Act in 1890 really come into force in 1903 or so, and Teddy Roosevelt really activated it. But it was in response to the shift. We had always done anti-monopoly stuff on a state level. The federalization of that was a result of the creation of these national corporate institutions. I sort of set the stage in my first of the series with the Thomas Kepler cartoon, Bosses <laughs> of the Senate, right. and uh, you know the big fat sort of robber barons uh, and its steel trust and oil trust. And there right. was even a right. uh, there was a paper bag trust, yeah. and a nail trust, yep. and uh, it, it just just kind of went on down the line. But Matt, you know, there's nothing new under the sun here, but there are also no perfect historical analogies. If I can attempt to state your thesis, the baby boomer generation came in 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 the early to mid-1970s, the Watergate babies who sort of took over the hill, uh, and they had other priorities. And they essentially overthrew traditional antitrust in favor of some of the efficiencies offered by very large businesses. And, uh, you know, a big part of that was to meet global competition. And so now we're having to learn some very hard-won lessons all over again. Fast forward to today, what's different and what have we seen before in this 21st century version of antitrust? Right. So, so the, to give some context, my basic view, as I was going into the archives and learning more about how members of Congress and writers and lawyers and business people thought about politics and the economy really prior to the 1970s, they really saw two different systems of of governance. And one was a democratic, more populist system of governance. And the other one was a more autocratic, monopoly-driven system of governance. And, and these are different political systems. And the, the, the headquarters of the democratic system was Washington, D.C. and state capitals. And the headquarters of the kind of more autocratic system was, was Wall Street. The corpulent robber barons represented in the Kepler cartoon those were not, that was not big business. That was, that was sort of the financiers, the people behind. That was blocking the channels of trade. The restraint, the idea of, the Sherman Act has restraints of trade, right? So they were restraining trade. So the point is that they thought that monopoly was an enemy of business. Monopoly was an enemy of labor, of small business, of farmers, because monopolists prohibited and restrained trade. Like they, they were in these large institutions, so they seemed to be facilitating lots of trade, but in fact, they were blocking trade. Anyway, so in the 1970s, what you saw was a series of intellectuals, mostly on the left. This would be people like C. Wright Mills, John Kenneth Galbraith, Herbert Marcuse, and a, and a bunch of others, Richard Hofstetter, made an argument that Americans weren't citizens with a, a right to produce and sell in uh, open markets, but they were consumers. And it didn't matter how th we produced or distributed things. What mattered is whether the stuff we got was cheap and whether uh, it was safe. And so they basically cut the knees out from under this tradition that was hundreds of years old that said how we structure markets is how we structure our democracy, whether we have democracy or not. It's how we structure our politics. And they said, let's just think of people like, like consumers. So from the citizen transformation, the way we think of ourselves from the citizen to the consumers. And at the same time on the right, you saw the development of, of a conservative law and economics movement, Robert Bork, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, and they made the argument that antitrust and regulatory choices to protect these open markets, that that was inefficient. So we should, you know, they were, they created something called consumer welfare, 
which was very appealing to the left, although it was was kind of invented on the conservative side of the aisle. And they said, actually, the point of anti-monopoly rules, antitrust, is not to protect the process of competition. It's to to serve consumers better. It doesn't matter if things institutions are big. It doesn't matter if there is a, only one or two players. All that matters is that stuff is cheap. We come from an agrarian and bucolic past, but this is a modern 21st century industrial economy. And can we really operate in the same fashion that we did 100 years ago or even 50 years ago when we the, the things we do and the way that we do them is on such a larger scale? Don't you need the efficiencies of these of these larger businesses, even if they're even if they're large? And and, and to your point, I've, I've asked uh, I've asked both my previous guests the same question of this question of harm. I get lots of free stuff and services that make my life better and easier that I don't know that a smaller business could provide. Doesn't the benefit outweigh the harm? So I'm going to challenge the premise of the question because it's a it's a common question. Um, they're really economies of scale are you know there, there's a number of ways to talk about what you're asserting, which are technical economies of scale. But the question is really not about whether you have a high productivity high wage economy it's it's a political choice about how to deploy power now the the way that monopolists have always portrayed the argument is that there's this this sort of bucolic pastoral nostalgic past and that we just want to return to tilling the rocky soil of new england and really what's happening is they're stealing they're stealing a lot of money and you know destroying important productive systems and lying about it. And that's really all that's going on. I mean, if you look at antitrust suits against, say, Standard Oil, Standard Oil, they made the, the Sam, uh, what is his name, a Sam Dold or something like that. I have Sam Darnold in my head, but it's not Sam Darnold. He's the New York Jets quarterback. But it's, the guy's <laughs> his name starts with, with uh, Sam Dodd. There we go. He wrote a book Sam Dodd. in 1900, Justifying Trusts. And he said, oh, you guys want to effectively same thing, go back and till the New England rocky soil. Standard Oil produces all of this great stuff. In reality, not really. I mean, and Standard Oil was actually withholding something that Indiana Standard Oil wanted to do, which was crack oil to make gasoline. New York Standard Oil said, what does anybody want with that? And then when the company got broken up, Indiana Standard Oil started to, Standard Oil of Indiana started to make gasoline and it worked really well. I mean, you saw this massive productivity increase in a whole gasoline industry. And that was just a result of breaking up the company. And you see that over and over and over with you know breakups of AT&T and, and you saw a sort of a quasi breakup of Alcoa. The aerospace industry was broken up. You've seen um, the internet's a function of, of breakups. All of these institutions are a result of simplifying lines of business. The populists who were opposed to concentrated private power were, you know, they were really forward looking. They all really loved science. You know, Wright Patman, he helped establish the National Science Foundation, did the first hearings on automation. What you're really talking about is not whether, you know, just because Google managed to capture a bunch of companies that did cool things and engineers produced those cool things doesn't mean that the legal institution of Google had anything to do with those useful things. Instead, in fact, I actually think that that basically after 2003 to 2004, Google effectively bought everything that they created with a, with a few exceptions. And you can see that over and over and over. And a, and a different example of that would be the most, probably the most scalable network system we've ever seen, which is the internet. 
And that, that has scaled by a million, 10 million, a hundred million times since it was first created and no one owns it. It's not like there's a corporation that, that owns the internet. And actually Robert Rubin had this. He was like, wait, what do you mean? When he first saw the internet in the early nineties, he said, wait, no one owns, who owns this thing? So, so the question of, of technical economies of scale and legal ownership and control are separate issues. Unless you're a PR person or kind of a, a an antitrust economist, large, most of whom are are bad at their jobs and agents of monopoly. <laughs> well, no one owns the internet. No, I mean it's just basically true. That right. that's just the that's just the reality here. Anybody who's looked at right. the these questions understands that the premise behind the economy of scale argument, when you're talking just about legal arrangements, is a is a sleight of hand. Well, no one owns the internet, but Google, your example, has a dominant position in search of the internet. And I believe, you know, that's what they're being sued for. They have a 90% dominant market share in online search, but it's a better mousetrap. There's Bing, there's Yahoo. Remember Ask Jeeves? Ask Jeeves did not become one of the largest companies on the planet. Uh, Google Alphabet did. Because it's better. It's I can I can pull up either one and get a better search off of Google than I can off of the others. So Google has nine products with more than a billion users. Now, I could go into quality differentiation, but the reason they're being sued isn't because they're they have high market share. The reason they're being sued is because they excluded corporations from the market who were trying to compete with them. And one of the ways that you compete on search is you have to get lots of people using your product so that you can improve your search because there's a lot of data that's required for a search engine. And Google paid Apple billions of dollars so that Google would be the search engine for Apple's iPhone. And they paid Mozilla, they paid a whole bunch of different in a whole bunch of different phone makers specifically so that nobody else could get their search engine to have any real user base, because if they did, then they would be able to create a competitive search engine. Now in Russia, the the Russians were able to actually address, you know, they were actually able to address some of the problems and they do actually have a competitive search engine market. And in, in many ways, Yandex is now as good or better in some ways than Google. But if you just look at search, if you look at search, you know, what Google has done is through a whole bunch of different contractual arrangements, they've excluded other competitors from the market. So you could say, oh, they're, they're the best. But if they hadn't excluded other competitors from the market, they probably would be still a very good product. They'd be much better than they are now because they'd actually have competition, but you'd have a whole variety of different search products to choose from. And I think that's really the, that, that's really the hypothetical that we should sort of pick against. But the other thing about Google is that they have, you know, they, they're not just a search engine. They have control over all of the software that underpins selling advertisements and buying advertisements, online display advertising. And they're, that's just a purely a monopoly problem. Um, they're just taking, you know, 30, 40, 50% of the revenue. Every dollar that goes into online advertising, the publisher gets 50 cents right. or 60 cents. Google takes the rest. They're being sued in Texas right now for that. But it's like, that has nothing to do with search engine or quality. That's just them monopolizing. Which was sort of the heart of, I mean, I guess we sort of back up here in terms of the timeline of antitrust enforcement. Was it 1912, I think, was the Standard Oil breakup? 1984 was AT&T. 1997, Microsoft got in trouble 
for tying its web browser to its operating system. And then similar to what you're talking about, leveraging its monopoly to undermine competitors. And that's sort of the basis of a lot of what's being alleged now against, uh, well, against Microsoft, against Google and Apple. They're using these dominant platforms to take any competitive actions against their competitors. Is that right? I mean, a simple case would be Apple and Google. They both have app stores. You can't get an app on your iPhone unless you go through the Apple app store. Apple takes 30% of whatever it is that you pay for that app. 30% first year, 15% second year. They also don't really have a particularly good app store for developers who want to choose different pricing or distribution arrangements because there's no competition. And then they block certain apps when they have a competing app. And that seems unfair to be able to say, no, actually, we don't like your particular way of doing email because we're going to do it that way. So we're going to, we're going to block you. That's what they did with a company called Blue Mail. So what Apple is, is a, is a private government over this vital artery of commerce, which is the iPhone. And you could argue, well, they created the iPhone. So. Right. It, it's really their, it's their product, it's their property. But at a certain point, I mean, we've had these debates. You go back to granaries, you go back to railroads, you have, go back to any number of, um, institutions, you know, hotels, restaurants. We always know that any commercial arrangement has some public character. It's like we don't let restaurants or hotels discriminate based on race because we know that commerce has some form of public character and public obligation. We have anti-monopoly rules for this reason. And I think in 2008, you could argue Apple should be have, able to have total control over their app store. But now everybody knows it's this incredibly important vehicle for how we organize our society. So they're really, Apple shouldn't be in such a dominant position over, over businesses all over the country. Well, that's the question, Matt. What do we do? Breakup, dissolution, I guess, are sort of easy remedies. Uh, we're both former Hill staffers. Uh, there's no shortage of legislative products up there. Uh, Senator Klobuchar, Mr. Buck, Mr. Cicilline right. uh, have all, you know, they're, they're, there's bipartisan broad level work going on in antitrust. The regulators are filing lawsuits left and right. What's the answer? How does, how does this particular to these big tech behemoths, what's the answer? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we could go back to the tradition, the debates in the 1912 election, which is when my book starts. And it's you, fe- you effectively have a, a couple of choices, philosophical choices. One is regulated monopoly. That would be the, the sort of the Teddy Roosevelt model. He's perceived of as a trust buster, but in fact, he didn't particularly want to break up monopolies. He just wanted to regulate them. That's kind of a, that feels easier because people are like, oh, don't break them up. That seems radical. Let's just do some regulation. But in fact, what will end up happening is you'll see a kind of a fusion with the state and these monopolies, which I think is really dangerous. And typically, when you, as we know with sort of Dodd-Frank and the ACA, when you try to regulate concentrated market players, they tend to be able to manipulate the regulations to exclude competitors. That's that, the regulated monopoly frame. Then there's the status quo, leave them alone frame. I don't think that's tenable. I think everybody sort of concedes, okay, that we've got to do something about market power. There's the socialist model that would be the Eugene Debs, let's socialize these institutions, which I don't right. think is really on the table. And then there's the Woodrow Wilson, the sort of the Brandeisian solution, which is to simplify these firms by breaking them up and then regulate the, the 
uh, you know, the marketplace, the business practices. And I think that's generally the, the easiest one, even though it seems, you know, oh my gosh, we can't break up Google. These, the reality is these firms spin off divisions all the time. That's, that's really all it is. It's not that complicated. It's just, it's just changing some, some legal paperwork and in some cases changing a little bit of infrastructure. But that is, that makes these, when you simplify these firms, when you just say, okay, search and YouTube and their ad tech products can't all be in the same company because there's too many conflicts of interest there or Amazon Marketplace and AWS and Amazon Studios and Amazon Basics. They, they, you know, you can't have an Amazon Logistics. You can't have what is effectively, you know, UPS, Target, and, you know, Disney all in one company. There's, that's too, there's too many conflicts of interest there. S- split them up. That's the simplest way to deal with it. And that's the, that's the first recommendation from the House Antitrust Subcommittee report from last Congress when they did a 16 month investigation. Cause these firms are just ungovernable right now. They're too big. They're too complicated. And we don't want a government that even that is powerful enough to understand these firms because that's a very scary government. So we have to right. simplify these institutions first. And there's, there's so many, uh, it sort of ticked off the federal response here, both legislatively and regulatory. But there are a lot of players in antitrust, and I'm curious, in, in addition to D.C., you've got, uh, I think, all 50 state attorneys general have been involved in, at some point in, in a number of these lawsuits. You've got uh, the EU regulators. I'm wondering where, if, if, if you were one of these uh, large corporations, where would you see the highest degree of danger coming from their business model? Who's, who's the closest to getting this figured out? You know, I'm a Democrat, but I would say Ken Paxton in Texas. It oh, pains wow. me to say it, but it's true. <laughs> Their suit is so uh, tight and, and aggressive and well done. So I think there are, there are antitrust agencies in 140 countries now. I mean, antitrust is an American tradition, but after World War II, we spread it sort of all over the world. Then in the 90s, it got another sort of supercharged boost. The um, Europeans have kind of failed and... The DOJ and FTC are doing a pretty good job. And then some of this, this Colorado state, they have Colorado's leading a set of states, which with a kind of silly, not silly case, but very narrow. But Texas, their case is aggressive. They found a kind of a cartel arrangement between Facebook and Google over online advertising, which is really just remarkable. And also cartels are way easier to prove and the law is much tougher. And, and this is, I think, most important. The Texas case, they have a whole bunch of violations of local state consumer laws, which are much easier to prove. The standard of, of, uh, the burden of proof is much lower for those and they have real teeth. So I think that though, those cases, the cases, the local cases, and then the, the sort of the Texas AG, who's got, I think, 14 states now, that stuff, I mean, I, I would be, if I were at Google, Looking at that, I would say, okay, that's the, that's the kind of number one threat. But then I guess there's also, so, you know, Arizona, and this is again, this is very weird and frustrating for me, but all the, this Arizona Republicans, Republicans states. yeah, the, well, Arizona Republicans voted for a bill to basically go after the app store monopolies of Google and Apple. And all the state Democrats were like, no, we have to support, you know, Google and Apple. It was very annoying, but you know, that's, that's another place. Well, really, it makes some very strange bedfellows. I mean, you know, if you read Ken Buck's uh, introduction yeah. to his third way report, 
uh, this note to Mr. Cicilline of uh, thanks for all this bipartisan cooperation. I mean, it's a lot of kumbaya. And that report was also signed by Matt Gates and right. uh, and Doug Collins. I mean, these are firebrands. I mean, it's pretty hard if you're a re- Republican to not see a threat to your way of life from these tech monopolies who have banned, you know, Trump and banned conservatives and, you know, are are banning books that conservatives might want to read. I mean, that's, I'm not a conservative, but it's fairly evident that if you are a conservative and you're looking at these firms, these don't look like businesses. They look like governments. Right. Right. They control the public square. Yeah. I think that's right. And I mean, and you also can look and see the fusion of sort of certain Democrats and media people attempting to weaponize these tech monopolies on behalf of what, you know, of a certain social agenda, which whether you agree with it or not, is a is a is a pretty scary thing. Matt, you're a you're a student of all of this, both on the Hill and and more broadly, but and you sort of open your book with this overthrow of Wright Patman, uh, another Texan who was uh, sort of in the populist tradition of uh, of antitrust that you describe. Who who's on your radar? Who's bringing who is at the vanguard? Uh, uh, Lena Khan being nominated to the FTC. Tim Wu uh, is at the White House. Who's sort of on your radar of reviving this populist tradition or, or tr- more traditional application of antitrust? So, so David Cicilline, who's the chair of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, I wrote my book because I wanted to show that we can restore our republic, right? And we've done it before. And the story of Wright Patman is a story of a member of Congress who, through dedication and hard work, and uh, you know, really kind of held the middle class together throughout the 20th century. He was he was uh, elected in 1928, and he was sort of overthrown in 1975. So really, those those middle years, and he went after chain stores, he went after banks, high interest rates, monopolists, and I think t- Chairman Cicilline, he read. I think he read my book. He's he was at my book party and he talked about, as he was doing these hearings, he talked about the, the importance of democracy and commerce, which is a way to talk about market power that we haven't seen in maybe 50 years. And that those, that investigation that took place felt very much like an investigation of the thirties or the 1950s. It did not feel like the modern neoliberal way of doing things. It was in depth, and you could just tell because when the when the CEOs you know go to Congress and testify, it's usually the senators or members of Congress usually don't sound particularly sophisticated when they're talking to them. Right. Often, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg will correct a senator on something very basic, the internet is a series of tubes. That's right. That that kind of thing, right? <laughs> but the House Antitrust Subcommittee CEO hearings last year were extraordinary, and it really changed the debate because. Members of Congress were incredibly well prepared. They had done, you know, they their staff had gone through millions of documents. They understood these markets as well as the CEOs did. And so it was a very different and much more equal kind of playing field. So that was really extraordinary. And I think that to me felt a lot more like a Patman hearing or like a Ferdinand Pecora. So what David Cicilline and Pramila Jayapal and Ken Buck and Matt Gates and kind of a whole series of of people did. I mean, I think it, that was led by the Democrats, but that was really interesting. And then I think what you see on the FTC with Lena Khan being nominated, 
and Rohit Chopra was doing some really interesting things over there. But I think kind of more broadly, you know, I'm just seeing something from the National Grocers Association, you know, writing about anti-monopoly work. And I'm seeing a lot of small business people and even medium and large size businesses, Epic Games and others, starting to say, no, this is not okay. And filing suits and making arguments about monopoly. You're really seeing a kind of like change in our commercial institutions and that the the whole political debate is is it's just really fascinating to watch. So I think that we're we're in kind of this broad moment. But I mean David Cicilline, I think Katie Porter is interesting. You know, I, I think on the right, you know, the one that that who's highly charged and controversial would be Josh Hawley, but he's been focused on monopoly questions and not just big tech ones. And then I think a lot of the Biden people are really interested in the monopoly power problem and seeing how it relates to, you know, their own agenda. So it's like, right. it's this very, it's a very broad restoration of, it's a restoration of a very broad tradition. Well, what is old is new again, a lot to figure out and sort out. The book is Goliath, a hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy Author Matt Stoller, thank you so much for joining me today on 14th and G. Hey, thanks for having me.